This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. How does the idea of a COVID super vaccine sound? One that will offer immunity against all the variants? We'll talk with a researcher who's working on that. And we're going to hear one man's struggle with acute mental psychosis that was bad enough to get him committed to a psych ward after only a mild case of COVID-19. Rutgers, the first major school to require all the students going back for the fall semester to get their vaccines. If you contracted the coronavirus, how long should you wait until getting a vaccine? And will drinking a lot of water help minimize the vaccine side effects? We are answering some of the most frequently asked questions. More people are now getting vaccinated across the country still. The bad news is if the coronavirus continues to mutate, today's vaccines might not offer immunity against newer variants. But here's good news. Scientists at the University of Virginia and Virginia Tech may have developed a potential vaccine that's a kind of universal coronavirus vaccine. Dr. Steven Zeichner, immunologist, infectious disease specialist at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. So, uh, yeah, this sounds great. Please tell me you think it's going to work. We hope it'll work. But before I get into that, I'd just like to say none of what we're doing takes anything away from the current vaccines that are out there. Everybody should get them as soon as they possibly can. I've gotten them. My wife, who's also a doctor, has gotten them, and our daughters have both gotten them, and they are great. But we do want to look to the future. Uh, Also, I just want to say that the work that I'm going to talk about um, has been submitted for publication, but it hasn't been formally published yet. So, um, you know, people will, scientists can make their own opinions of what we've put out there. But yes, you are exactly right. We are trying to make a vaccine that will be. Um, that will provide protection against many of the different variants that are coming out in the future or that may come out in the future. And uh, going back to to the current vaccines, right, all of these vaccines target the the so-called spike protein of the coronavirus, right? Uh, So to design a sort of universal coronavirus vaccine, Uh, without getting too technical, what does that involve that these vaccines that are currently available do not do? So the vaccines that are out there um, use the entire spike protein. What we wanted to do was to just use one little part of the spike protein. So around the world, there are thousands of scientists who, when they get an isolate, an example of the virus, determine its genetic sequence, and they put that up into databases that anybody can access. And then there are software packages that can compare the genetic sequences of all of those viruses and see which part of the spike protein has a lot of variation, which part of the spike protein has little variation. And there are a few small regions of the spike protein that seem not to vary at all among all the viruses that have been sequenced so far. And not only the viruses uh, for COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2, but also other coronaviruses. There are many, many coronaviruses in the world. So we decided to test the ability of a vaccine made just for one little piece of the spike protein that's called the fusion peptide. The common colds, 
is a coronavirus. So is this a step in the right direction to getting a vaccine for the cold? Um, potentially it could, although uh, that would be work for the future. And I wouldn't want to um, make predictions because in, in science, if you make too many predictions, you're invariably proved wrong. But that would be the <laughs> that would be the that would be the direction that we'd hope we could move in. Do you have a sense of how long it might take to for this to reach the point where there are trials in humans? Well, we've only so far demonstrated a an effect um, in an animal model. So working with my wonderful collaborator at Virginia Tech, XJ Meng, um, XJ is a um, a renowned animal virologist. Virginia Tech is where our vet school is. And XJ studies coronaviruses in veterinary animals like, like pigs. There's a disease of pigs called porcine epidemic diarrhea virus, or PEDV. PEDV is caused by a coronavirus. It's a coronavirus, but it's only a distant relative of SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that causes um, COVID-19. So what we did was we made a vaccine uh, targeting the fusion peptide of both PEDV and SARS-CoV-2, vaccinated the pigs with both of those vaccines, and then tested the ability of those vaccines to protect the pigs against the pig virus. And remarkably, both of those vaccines, both the PEDV and the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, protected the pigs against clinical disease um, after they had an experimental infection with the PEDV. So the thinking is that if those very distant coronaviruses, vaccines made targeting the fusion peptide of those very distant coronaviruses can both protect the pigs against the PED PE, disease due to PEDV, then if we use that ultimately, if everything works out well in humans, um, that vaccine should be able to protect humans against a wide variety of coronaviruses, including, we hope, many of the variants that may be um, coming up in the future for SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. Hmm. Dr. Steven Zeichner, immunologist, infectious disease specialist, University of Virginia School of Medicine. There are a whole host of symptoms tied to COVID long hauler syndrome, from long-term fatigue to gastrointestinal issues to persistent coughs. And they can range from the annoying to the debilitating. But there are some isolated cases of intense long-haul symptoms that are downright scary. That's what Ivan Adgerton has experienced. He caught a mild case of COVID back in December, figured he was okay when the infection came and went without serious complications. But then he started to experience hallucinations, turned into delusions. He had psychosis. So, Ivan, uh, last few months have been like what for you? Uh, I would describe the last few months uh, as absolutely the most terrifying few months of my life. Um, just having having contracted COVID and then getting through what I thought were pretty pretty mild symptoms. Um, you know, I was quarantined and then getting out of getting out of quarantine and then just a few days later having this paranoia hit me like a light switch. Um, yeah, completely terrifying. 
when you talk about paranoia hitting you like a light switch, can you put into words for people who are trying to understand what that actually means? People get it when someone says I had a fever or someone says I, you know, I developed a cough. What is it like developing, if you've never had it before, paranoia? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it started with a, you know, the solicitation calls that we all get, um, you know, the calls where they, where they ring and hang up. And um, it was just one day in my car, I had received one of those calls. And instantly, um, I grew intensely suspicious. Um, and it, it was such that, um you know, as soon as I got home, I had to download, I was compelled to download a uh, police scanner app and start listening. It just, it was this sudden onset that I was onset of, that I was being watched um, and that there were people, uh, you know, outside of my house uh, in the bushes, literally um, watching me. Um, every car that drove by, it felt as though they were watching me. Uh, that is what it's like. And, and, you know, it's funny because paranoia is not pleasant. It's not something where you're going to be paranoid that you're going to win the lottery. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> it tends to be um, some pretty ominous thoughts that you have. And when this is happening, what are you thinking? Are you able to detach it enough to go, why am I thinking these things? Or do you know them in some way to be to be true to you? Yeah, no, I, my rational mind was still intact. And, and that really is what it made, what made it so frightening, because I knew that, that something was wrong. I knew that, that this wasn't the case. Um, but it felt so real. And when I downloaded the police scanner, for example, um, you know, I started having these auditory hallucinations. And Every time I would walk out and take my dog for a walk, for example, I would hear on the police scanner, he's out walking his dog right now. And I would hear an actual voice. Um, and of course, it wasn't there, um, but I was actually hearing it. How did you end up linking this to the COVID that you had? Well, it wasn't until um, I mean, we had an idea because... Uh, a good friend of ours who was the head of the psych ward at Harborview, which is the, one of the local big hospitals up here in Seattle, uh, we had called, my wife had called her and, and told her what was going on. And, um, you know, we knew it wasn't schizophrenia because I'm, I'm 50 years old and schizophrenia usually hits you um, in your early, uh, early 20s, late teens, I think, early 20s. Um, and so we had a thought that because I had been sick that, you know, maybe it was COVID related, but we really didn't know until we got to the emergency room and they checked me into the hospital and we really started to do some, some research. And I tested positive for COVID while, while I was in the hospital. So, um, so I'd gone in, so, so to back up, I had been on an expedition for two months out in Saudi Arabia. And um, we had tested before the expedition started for COVID and I tested negative. We had tested it um, after the expedition and I tested negative. And then I flew home. And at some point on that flight, I had a couple legs um, 
uh, on that flight. Uh, I was exposed to the virus. Um, it hit me when I got home. I started feeling bad around November 21st, 22nd uh, is when I started feeling common cold symptoms. And the plan was always to isolate when I got home. And so I was in isolation until um, about December 14th, um, which was kind of nice because I was in my bedroom and I was getting I was getting room service for, for that amount of time. <laughs> um, but uh, so I had been sick for quite a while. And, and, and so to, to then still test positive for COVID, once I checked into the ER, um, and there was a whole lead up to that, to that moment. How are you being, if you are, treated now for it? Uh, and how do you currently feel? Well, I'm not out of the woods yet. Um, it's much, much better. Uh, they have me on um, on an antipsychotic medication and, and an anxiety medication. Um, and I am recovering my sense of smell slowly but surely. So I think those two, my hope is that they're connected. And as my smell comes back, that's an indication that the brain infection is actually starting to go away. And then the psychosis will be over with. I also just received my COVID vaccine yesterday, and I have heard stories that people are starting to recover almost instantly um, after they get their their COVID yeah, we vaccine. Yeah, we were talking about that the other day, that, that some of the long haulers, at least anecdotally, are starting to feel better. So at least that's something yeah. you can, you can kind of hinge some, some hope on. Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm hopeful. I feel good today. Um, you know, it's... it's uh, all of the trauma has taken place in this house that we live in. We we actually sold our house in Seattle and moved over to an island. And we've been renting here uh, while we explore the neighborhoods. And so the entire time I've been in this house, I've been experiencing this paranoia. So I'm ready to get out of this house. And I think that's yeah. cha- a change of environment um, will will help as well. So what would you tell the folks out there? And there are still, you know, many who downplay COVID, they're not still convinced that it is, a, uh, at least for some people, a, uh, a serious disease. What would you tell those people based on your own experience? Well, I would say take your politics out of this. This has got nothing to do with politics. You're not, people aren't asking you to give up your civil rights. People are just asking you to take care of your community. And this is a real thing. And, um, and the, the evidence is there. Not only my own um, experience with this, but I know so many people um, and I, and I have a foot in both, in both worlds. I I grew up in rural Nevada around uh, a lot of cowboys and stuff like that. And, and in that world, um, you know, there is this fierce independence and, and I think that's clouding a lot of their, their views Um, just from the, and I I can speak to that because I, a few of my friends that I know are, are, fiercely independent it's a government thing and and really it's not it, this is this is a virus <laughs> that's attacking the globe and we have to do everything that we possibly can to try and keep our community safe and thing a thing as simple as wearing a mask and i know exactly when i caught it the people on the aircraft that were with me across the aisle they were not wearing masks and they refused to wear masks um, i won't mention the airline but um you know there was nothing done with the airline i for them. And the woman was looking very, fairly sickly. And so fairly confident I caught it from her. And if she would have been wearing a mask, I probably wouldn't have contracted this. 
Rutgers University in New Jersey has become the first major college system in the country to require students coming back to campus in the fall be vaccinated against COVID-19. So far, universities have been strongly encouraging their students to get vaccinated, but have not yet made it a requirement in order to get back to class or dorms after this summer. So universities do routinely require proof of other types of vaccinations, measles and mumps for students staying in the dorms. But the pandemic and all the politics wrapped up in it, it's a different type of challenge. Lynn Pascarella, president of the Association of American Colleges and Universities. So is this going to be how things look like for the big schools in the future? I think it will be. I think Rutgers uh, is the first of many institutions that will adopt mandatory policies so what do you do about the sticky politics, though, and people who don't want to get them and say, hey, I got into this school. I'm perfectly healthy. Uh, I don't have coronavirus right now. You can test me all you want, but you can't force me to get the shot if I'm going to go here. Yeah, as, as you've already pointed out, there are mandatory requirements now for measles, mumps, rubella shots, for meningitis shots. It's for the protection of the broader community. And we know that COVID-19 has a disparately negative impact on students of color. And, and so it makes sense for college and university presidents to implement these policies in order to ensure the safety of those students who are most vulnerable. All right. But let me suggest one of the major potential sticking points here. And it kind of bounces off what Mike's question is. You know, the, the military, U.S. military does require vaccinations for all kinds of things, but they're not requiring it for COVID vaccine because at the moment, the vaccine is still actually experimental, all of them. None of them have actually been fully approved. Does that present a problem? Because unlike these other diseases that we were referring to, uh, this is still, whether it's Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, these are all still experimental. Yeah, this is an interesting issue. My professional background is in medical ethics, and so I look carefully at these cases. It has passed testing. Um, it was expedited for its use, but it has been proven both efficacious and safe. Uh, we're not saying that students have to take the AstraZeneca vaccine. We've tested Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, Pfizer vaccines, and there are always exceptions. There are exceptions for religious accommodations and for those who cannot tolerate because of pre-existing health conditions, the vaccines. And, and uh, so we take that into account in making these decisions. Should or will you, these schools, you think, offer centers for people to go and get vaccinated if they haven't, if they show up and it's past the summer? And they say, you know, I never got around to it uh, for whatever reason, but I'm moving in. So go over yes. to this building and get one now. I think they must do that, uh, especially with international students who might not have had access to the vaccines that we've tested here in the United States. And so this is something that I know Rutgers is setting up and other institutions will as well. And and what do the universities do when when students, as, as many might likely do, because some of them are doing it even without the vaccine, I'm referring to wearing masks and social distancing, come back and say, well, you know what, I'll, I'll get the vaccine, but if I'm going to be vaccinated, I don't want to wear a mask and I don't want to socially distance. Uh, well, I mean, they have internal policies within colleges and universities and I think you were right to point out at the beginning of this conversation that it will be driven in part by politics. And so in states like Texas and Florida, where they've had governors and uh, other legislators who are opening up states more rapidly and easing off mask mandates, social distancing, 
it will be a tougher sell for those colleges and universities to be able to make the case for mandating it in a, in a broader political context. What are those rules going to look like, do you think? Is it if I'm in the lecture hall, I got to wear the mask or when I'm walking around or even in the dorms? I guess I live here with my roommates, so we can take them off together. But if I'm out in the halls, is the RA going to chase me down if I don't have my mask on? Yes, I think in any public space, as it is now in uh, you know many different venues, if you're in a public space, you have to wear a mask, you have to socially distance, otherwise people will chase you down. Are, are you getting any sense of feedback from, uh, you mentioned at the very outset that, that Rutgers would be, is among the first of, of others. Are you hearing from other major universities that they're going to do the same thing beginning in the fall? Certainly hearing a lot of discussion by college and university leaders saying that they want to open in the fall. They need to ensure the safety and well-being of faculty, students, and staff. And so they are uh, leaning toward mandating vaccines. Well, what about for the faculty and staff? They have to have them as well? It's a bit different because they're you know, usually not residents on college campuses. Faculty and staff are more likely because they are at greater risk uh, to have have those vaccines. There's also the option that they could, if they want to be accommodated for whatever reason and not taking the vaccine, teach remotely. It's it's more difficult for students to do that um, if we're not on a residential campus, obviously. Lynn Pascarella, president of the Association of American Colleges and Universities. When we come back, can drinking a lot of water before getting a COVID vaccine help reduce side effects? Plus this year's Easter and Passover celebrations will be a little less lonely. You're listening to Coronavirus Daily on Radio.com. One of the common side effects of the coronavirus vaccine, soreness in your arm. But there may be a simple thing you can do to minimize the pain. Also, if you want to take a painkiller for that sore arm, you may not want to take this type of drug. Carol McKenzie, KYW, spoke with Dr. Brian McDonough from Trinity Health to answer some of the most frequently asked questions about what to do and what not to do before and after you get your vaccine shot. The first question most people had was about pain. And we've all heard this, Dr. Brian. The shot goes in your arm into the muscle and it's common to feel soreness or stiffness in the arm after you get vaccinated. Why? Why? Why does that happen? It's normally just from the actual injection. The fact you have a needle put in there and, and it goes into the muscle, that's enough for some people to cause irritation and inflammation. You know, your body kind of goes, wait a minute, something that shouldn't be there has just pricked my arm and, and it reacts. Occasionally and, and rarely, because people who do this are usually quite good at it, it may be possible that some of the vaccine like didn't go directly into the muscle. But the way they are almost pre-supplied and pre-set up these vaccines it's pretty much impossible to mess that up. So the pain you're really experiencing is more from that initial injection and your body's reaction. My cousin's a nurse and he told his mom to just keep moving her arm. Does that help? It really does. It's funny you say that, but that's what you do. Like some people get carried away. They're just doing it all day. Like it's just, you don't want to keep frozen. You just move it around and it, and it can help. But honestly, some people are going to get it worse than others. Some people, I've had both people, I've had people go, I didn't get any reaction. You know, I'm worried about that. Should I have had more? And other people are like, this is annoying. Um, warm compresses, those types of things, they can help if it does irritate you. Elaine from Monco and Brenda from Philly and a lot of other people wanted to know if it's okay to take something to help with the arm pain, like ibuprofen, acetaminophen, aspirin. Are we? Can we take that? You probably don't want to. I think the thing is, uh, in fact, Dr. Paul Offit from Children's Hospital, who's 
you know, our local expert on vaccines, he said it, it probably is not going to stop your reaction, your in, your ability to fight the, you know, the infection. But if possible, you don't want to take anything that has an anti-inflammatory effect. The one that I would really avoid would be ibuprofen because that directly would do it. But again, if you've taken ibuprofen or acetaminophen, I would not be overly stressed out about it because any impact it has is minor. So Marianne called us and said she took acetaminophen before she got her vaccine and then was told she shouldn't have done that. Should she be concerned? Is she still protected then? She shouldn't. Um, it's a very small impact. What I think they're trying to tell people is let's try to avoid things if possible. And we want to, you know, we, we're learning about the vaccine as we go. But we have, a, you know, years of all sorts of vaccines that we've been giving. And, and that is that's not something that's a major factor. It's hard, though, because some of these side effects after you get the vaccine, people report feeling pretty miserable for a day or two. And, and that's the point. If you're at a point where you know, you're starting to get a temperature, things are starting to happen. You, I think you take care of yourself and not be overly concerned about that. Make yourself feel comfortable. I think what they're trying to do is say that just just don't think, well, you know, sometimes I'll take this in advance. So if there's any problems, I can avoid it. I wouldn't do that. Okay. We got a lot of questions from people who have recovered from COVID. Uh, James from Northeast Philly wanted to know how long you should wait to get vaccinated if you've had COVID. How long should your recovery be before you get a shot? Now, the CDC has gone back and forth on this, as many of the things with COVID kind of learned as we go. Now they're saying about five days after you feel better, you can get it. The one group that I would be more concerned about and I would talk with my doctor is, if you've been hospitalized and you've gotten plasma or you've gotten any of those cocktails, you know, with the that helps you with your antibodies, that's something I would check with your doctor. But if you were just home, get COVID, minimal symptoms, you got through it. Um, really, after you're clear of the fever and everything, about five days later, you can get the vaccine. We want people to get the vaccine. So Jay from Northeast Philly said he heard that drinking lots of water 24 to 48 hours before getting the vaccine can eliminate some of the side effects. Is that is that true? It probably won't eliminate the side effects. There's no studies on it. But I will tell you, drinking lots of water is always a good thing. So if it makes you feel better and you've got more fluid in your system, I think you'll feel better. But who knows if it helps? Why not? Easter and Passover will continue to see pandemic style celebrations this year. But maybe just a little more joyful than 2020. Now that more than half of Americans over the age of 65 have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, the CDC has set new guidelines for the religious occasions. If you're fully vaccinated, you can gather indoors and go maskless with unvaccinated people from one other household. Now that means vaccinated grandparents get to celebrate with their unvaccinated children and grandchildren from a single household. But even if you are fully vaccinated, the CDC says you should still avoid medium or large sized gatherings and domestic and international travel still not recommended. I like that phrase, though. I'm going maskless. Yes, we're going to go maskless. The unmasked for one household. Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. We are there. 